Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. Content warnings for this episode include possible trauma discussion around neurodivergence and mental health, mentions of experienced and internalized ableism. So hi everyone, I'm Gender Meowster. I use they them pronouns. This is my co-host Neferkitty. She's not yet asleep on the job, but I imagine she'll be dozing soon here. And I will let my guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Rewarded Drawer. I go by Reward or Rad for short. My pronouns are they them. And I am a, I'm a live streamer on Twitch and uh, my special interests are music in all of its forms, um, whether it is musical performance, live performance production, um, even like uh, musical theater and things like that. And even spoken word, basically just love performance. I'm also really big on like tabletop RPGs and also big on video games and especially rhythm games, which combine um, my love rhythm and gaming. Like Beat Saber rhythm games? Yes, Beat Saber, although I don't really get the opportunity to play Beat Saber very often because I don't have a headset available to me. What about that Legend of Zelda like rhythm game that exists? Cadence of that Hyrule? One? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you I tried Cadence of Hyrule? <laughs> yep. I've mostly only heard about it, but it sounds fun. It's great. It's the spiritual successor. Actually, it's the literal successor as well to Crypt of the Necrodancer, and yeah, it yeah, stars, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm big on Crypt. It's also, that's another one that combines two genres I really love, rhythm and roguelikes. So uh, really big on Crypt of the Necrodancer, and also huge on Legend of Zelda, so that's a co- combination of three things that I really love. Actually, for my first wedding anniversary, I played uh, Cadence of Hyrule live on stream with my spouse, and we were both in our Link and Zelda cosplay. Oh my glob. Yeah. Are you do you like to be Link or Zelda? Link has big non-binary energy, I'm just saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> I know the headcanon for a lot of people is that Zelda is transfem and Link is transmask. I love that so much. That's my favorite headcanon mm-hmm. I've heard all day. May I call you Rad? You may call me Rad. I love being called Rad. Wonderful. Rad, can you tell us what are some things that you trace back to your youth? that indicated you might be gender diverse one day? There's a lot. And a lot of it is stuff that I definitely just filed away under, like I never, it never really occurred to me that I could be trans. Like I I have, I feel like that's a lot, a common experience for a lot of people. It's nobody told you, you could just be a girl Mm -hmm. or nobody told you that you had to be a boy or whatever, or Mm -hmm. that you had to be a girl. And so a lot of it was just stuff that was filed away under, oh, of course, lots of people do that. And then I just didn't think about it for years and years. I remember when we were like five years old, my mother dressed my younger brother and I in like her evening gowns and her shoes and everything like that. We paraded around on the patio and they were obviously way oversized for us. And even though it was mostly just goofing off in her clothes and everything like that, the memory that I still very fondly, probably suspiciously fondly for someone who definitely wasn't trans. And then that 
is like a, a running current of a lot of one-off events that's, oh yeah, I don't really, don't really think about it all that much. And then it just, just no, no self-reflection happens and it just, we move on to the next one. And mm-hmm. all of these things happen in isolation until a pattern sort of forms in your head and everything clicks. And um, like, that's a lot of stereotypes. Like I always played the girl characters and things like that, that aren't really like significant events, but I was always the girl character. No matter what game we played, like I was like, I was the sorceress in the Amazon in in Diablo, which is huge for me as a kid. And those are like the two girl classes. I also played the necromancer, but that's aside from the point. Mostly I just loved being a summoner and just going AFK. The This is a little not safe for work, but everyone has, has like sex dreams and stuff. As a teenager, puberty hits and everything. And in mine, I was overwhelmingly a lesbian. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been a pretty strong indicator for me. And I still didn't figure it out for another 15 years. So you never know. I love that you had lesbianic dreams. That's so fun. <laughs> yep. That's how I found That's... out I'm a bottom. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's incredible. So you had some hands along the way. But I did have you. Hands. You didn't take them, but it's, I feel like it's also very maybe autistic to not get a clue <laughs> like can we'll, i say that we'll be talking about that as well i'm sure person. it's just oh that was really obvious now that i realize that's what all of that was okay <laughs> yes we're talking about i i had that exact same experience with being told i was autistic so uh-huh. it's a common it's a common thread for me did, for sure. did people tell you a bunch of times before it no. landed for you nope. no 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 <laughs> Nobody told me I was autistic uh, until I was 22, 23. Nobody even told me I had a learning disability until I was 22. And I was failing out of college in my senior year. And that's a challenge because it's, oh my gosh, the last 15 years could have been so much easier if someone had just told me this. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. My wife tells a story about she realized she was trans because she was in the process of realizing she was autistic, but she had all of the quote unquote female autism things and that's part of why she didn't get diagnosed because she was assigned male at birth and so people assumed oh you're a boy so therefore you can't be autistic Mm because you're not having these male autism things but she had all these female autism things i wonder if you had any similar experience it's it's interesting to me how people lock that stuff into a gender binary and then misdiagnose people i think it has more to do with my age and the circumstances of my upbringing this is a bit of a long story, if you don't mind the, the oh, long yeah. digression. So I'm 32 years old, and when I was an infant, what's the best way to put it? The dsm 4 which included uh, a broader spectrum of disorders in the uh, autism spectrum, because before it was like just autism, and then they introduced PDD, NOS, uh, or PDD not otherwise specified, as well as Asperger's syndrome, which of course was dropped during dsm 5 but the arrow of Asperger's syndrome is actually pretty significant for a lot of reasons, regardless of how you feel about Hans Asperger or the the split that happens there. And it's actually significant for whether I would have been diagnosed. So that's why it's important, as well as uh, Rett syndrome. And I can't remember the fifth one that was included in the optimum spectrum at the time, but it was a very, like, very seldom diagnosed one. And then that DSM-4 was released in... 1993, and it included a lot of a broader spectrum of criteria 
that would be used to diagnose people in the coming years. And that spectrum of criteria is why we saw the autism epidemic of the mm -hmm. late 90s and early 2000s, where the diagnostic rates quintuple. So you go from having about one in 300 people diagnosed with autism to about one in 50 or 60. I missed that boat. I was just a little too old for myself to have been diagnosed via DSM-4 criteria, which were mostly angled at infant diagnosis. A lot of like infant diagnosis was what increased over that time. Before then, you were only diagnosed if you had like severe autism or things like that because Asperger's wasn't really considered. There wasn't like a broader spectrum of autism that was considered officially in the DSM. And so... There, I missed that boat. And then going forward, I was three when Hurricane Iniki hit my island. And Hurricane Iniki devastated basically everything here. I grew up with basically like a lot of the buildings around us. In fact, my own home had to be replaced wholesale. Like it, but it had to be like torn down and, and rebuilt. Uh, a lot of them had to. Wow. I was fortunate enough to miss being actually in Hurricane Iniki only because my father had taken the family to Oregon to finish his culinary arts degree. And there's so often to coincide, we left like the month before it happened. But when we came back, our the place that we were renting was destroyed. Schools, a lot of facilities were destroyed. Just wholesale, everything was, a lot of it was just gone or was like in di dire need of repair. So mm -hmm. when I went to elementary school, in addition to SPED services not being great for a lot of reasons, there was no inclusion in schools, everyone was just pulled away. They were not really looking at a lot of people. Everything was underserviced and everything. Like SPED services were obviously not really present, but- Can you define what I SPED is for folks who don't know? Special education. Awesome, thank you. Yes, sorry, I work in special education or I, I did up until the pandemic, so. I will probably pass over a lot of three-letter acronyms or four-letter acronyms that are common nomenclature. I'll try to avoid them. I'm not shy about asking you to define it for us. No worries. Thank you. But when I say like special education services were not like super developed in my schools when I was growing up, we didn't, we were eating out of a Matson container until second grade or third grade. We didn't have a library. And when we did get the library up, I, I can't remember if it was the library or the cafeteria that went up in second grade and the other one went up in third. But the point is like all my early elementary years, we were reading moldy books that were just like mildewed over from the, the hurricane. We were, we were still replacing a lot of stuff. We had basically like we were using like reams of paper and notebooks that were like FEMA aid, basically. We did not have a lot. And while the school ended up being built, rebuilt over time as I was there, like a lot of things just had to be replaced wholesale. I was eating off of like a foldable bench in a literal steel container for the first few years of my elementary education. Special education was like not a priority for the kids that weren't actively falling off. And I happened to be in the opposite situation in early elementary ed where I was leaps and bounds ahead of my peers. We didn't have a gifted and talented program. So we didn't have a lot, but we had like parents who were volunteers, including my own mother and uh, one of my friend's father who would come in and they would take us aside and they'd be like, you're in first grade. 
but we're going to teach you some fourth grade math because that's where you're at. And so nobody was considering me as being like in that sort of situation of needing extra services so much as they were trying to like have me not be held back by the general education system. And that didn't really change until fifth grade when I had a teacher who was in no way accommodating and was uh, kind of a nightmare for a lot of people, irrespective of neurodiversity. And in that grade, I was pulled from gen ed and I started doing homeschooling. And when I say that the neurodivergence issue didn't come up, I mean that I was having issues that were probably related to autism and attention deficit disorder, but they were overcome by the fact that everyone was struggling in that class. I was pulled in Thanksgiving weekend and I was the 10th person in a class of 30 to be pulled from that class. Wow. So it was not seen as a me issue, even though I was probably having issues, it was overcome by other things happening at the time. Mm -hmm. And and then from that point on, I homeschooled until college and nobody was looking at me. In fact, I did something called unschooling from like seventh grade onward, which is to say that I basically just taught myself through Google and like books that we would just buy off, like the Saxon math books and everything like that. And then I just taught myself until college. And I took the GED and I got an award for the highest test scores in the state for that year. And nobody was looking at me until I started failing in university. So nobody was telling me I was maybe autistic or ADHD. And it didn't actually, it didn't cross their minds. One of my first assignment when I started working in schools and special education was a pair of fifth grade boys um, with autism who I was working uh, as a paraprofessional for. And I was in the exact same school that I went to as an elementary schooler that I got pulled from in the exact same grade that they were at when they, when I got pulled. And so I got to see, I got to draw a lot of parallels between my experiences and theirs. And I had the opportunity to sit down with my own fourth grade teacher who was still teaching there and she was still teaching fourth grade and she had both of them the previous year. And I got to ask her what, I got to ask her like what her experiences with having them in the classroom were like and gather a little bit of background information. And I asked her like, what was I like as a fourth grader? And she was like, oh, you were delightful. There were so many times where you would just be like looking out the window or staring off into space, looking at the mountains in the background or stuff like that. And I was like wondering if you were paying attention. And then I would finish asking a question and you would just whip your head up to the front and blurt out the answer before everyone else. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, he's paying attention. And it just never occurred to her that I was having problems with sustained attention and two, having problems with turn-taking, both of which are ADHD issues Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also issues with autism that students aren't really, aren't socialized to learn turn-taking abilities, have problems with. And she was just like, oh yeah, he's doing great. It didn't really occur to her at all to maybe check in on that (laughs) because I wasn't struggling. So you you weren't struggling because you were so your brain was moving so much faster than everyone else that basically there was not a thought that maybe some support might be helpful (laughs) 
for the future when the subject matter finally got difficult. <laughs> yeah, I was struggling socially, but the teachers weren't paying attention to that. I wasn't struggling academically, which they were paying attention to, so they didn't notice. It's a, kind of a common story for people that have quote unquote, it's that's the way it is in the DSM-5, but quote unquote mild autism. There's a lot of controversy about whether or not autism should be labeled as a spectrum, this whole d division or delineation between degrees of autism. But there's definitely, regardless of what you feel about the quote unquote degree of autism or the way that autism is expressed in different people, there's this problem with underdiagnosis with autism and with ADHD, where if your symptoms aren't quote unquote severe enough, to catch immediate attention, they almost just don't get caught at all. And so you have a lot of different studies that have been done to gather the rate of gather the rate of like underdiagnosis or misdiagnosis for people with autism and ADHD. And basically what they do is they just take a thousand people, like a sample of a thousand people at random, and they they test them for they first they get their background and see if they were ever diagnosed with any of these disorders or neurodivergences. And then they uh, test them to see if they meet the criteria for those neurodivergences. And the truth of the matter is about 20% of people who would classify as ADHD or as autistic via these, these selection studies are actually diagnosed. So there's a, a wow. sort of an epidemic of underdiagnosis, actually, for a lot of these, these neurodivergences that leads to a lot of people falling through the cracks. So we have a question from, it looks like from Juliet. Any thoughts on the idea of quote unquote, twice exceptional? I would need to, I'm not quite sure what twice exceptional means. Could I get some clarification? Maybe if Juliet types it in the chat. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm going to ask for clarification on that because I, I am Gathering that it probably means like the sort of gifted and talented exceptional where you are well ahead in your cognitive abilities or as demonstrated in like academic studies and stuff like that, but also exceptional in the neurodivergent end where you're, you have symptoms of autism or ADHD and there's the overlap that happens there, which is... I think where the misconception for Asperger's is, as it was like originally diagnosed by Hans Asperger in the 30s, of the like the little geniuses, yeah. as you would call it, that's the sort of the twice exceptional. So there is there's there is overlap, as there is people who are neurotypical and gifted, as well as people who are neurodivergent and not gifted. That's it's a pun it's a punnet square. It's I don't think that there's necessarily concordance. I don't think that one necessarily leads to the other, which is a misconception that a lot of people have with high-functioning autism, which is why I feel like that term is damaging. But it, pro it produces a kind of unique experience, which is one that I had as a twice-exceptional student, where one exception is overlooked for the other. And it's one of those situations where unless you have obvious signifiers that are caught very early, you aren't checked for them at all because you aren't struggling. And if you're not struggling, then you're not a problem. And 
you're not a problem, then you don't get looked at for diagnosis, which is, I feel, where a lot of sexism and racism and diagnostic criteria come from. Because, say, for example, for women with ADHD or people who are like women and femme people with ADHD and autism tend to have a different socialization growing up just by virtue of being women and femme. Mm-hmm. And so they are encouraged to, to be quiet and to be demure and to not really rock the boat and to take a back seat. And because of that, they're not the ones acting out. And because they're not acting out, they're not problems. And because they're not problems, they're not looked at for diagnosis. And then with people who are like people of color, especially with black children, and especially here with Asian Pacific Islanders, if you're causing problems, especially like young boys, because of the same socialization, and part of this is cultural as well, because there's a a lot more of a relaxed parenting style that happens with Asian Pacific Islanders. It's a lot of a lot more like free expression and everything like that. There's this thing where if you're acting out in schools, you're a problem, but you're not looked at for neurodivergence because of the racism that comes in where you're a problem because you're a troublemaker and you're a troublemaker because of these because of these, you know, implicit assumptions that are being made by the people who would recommend you for this diagnosis or for review are instead just thinking of that being the way that you are because of the color of your skin or your culture or something like that. And so I think that twice exceptional tends to lead to overwhelmingly white boys who are happen to hit the intersect of acts weird and isn't very intelligent or uh, displays a lot of intelligent characteristics being diagnosed as both exceptional academically and exceptional in neurodivergence. And so it's uh, there's a lot of thoughts that go into that. Basically, if I think about it, I think that it's one of those things that we really need to like not consider exceptional academic ability as a disqualifier for neurodivergence. You probably won't get a lot of underdiagnosis in exceptional young girls or exceptional children of color. You'd probably find a lot more ADHD and autism there where they would normally be considered troublemakers, but there's so many confounding factors. It's a Gordian knot of weird issues with the education system and with ableism and racism and sexism on all levels in the education system that it's hard to figure out which part you should try and untie first. And it's probably better to just cut the whole system and start anew. It's, I don't know. Yeah. We have a comment from the chat from Juliet and Maddie. Racism in special education programs is a really under-discussed issue. Thanks for bringing up that aspect. Of course. It's something that I've seen a fair amount of. A paraprofessional, I usually worked one-to-one or one to small group with autistic children. And here where I am, there's a lot of like white people are minority. It's this, the islands are overwhelmingly Asian and Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asian, like large Filipino communities. Obviously there's native Hawaiian communities. A lot of people from like Japan and Korea and the whole Eastern end or I guess it's the Western end of the Pacific Rim, but like far East Asia. And so I've seen a lot of kids growing up who are well, growing up and as an educator who are basically 
mirroring a lot of the experiences I've had, but like from a very different cultural lens. Mm-hmm. And some of it is the way that their own parents respond. Some of it's the way that the teachers and the system responds, but there's there are a lot of ways that children who are otherwise like me growing up get very different experiences. And some of them end up being a discriminatory or end up being damaging in ways that I wouldn't have experienced if I was diagnosed as a kid. So looking at your personal trajectory, your personal life story a little more, how has your relationship to gender evolved over time? So you had some obvious to you now hints back in the day, but how did you go from person who's being called he, him, little young being to, for those who are listening later and can't see your fabulous outfit, you have this like off the shoulder top with this other little, I don't even know how to describe the neck and your long hair off to the one side and the cute little beanie beret situation, like such a good outfit. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I shamelessly stole this outfit from a friend of mine who is also questioning. And I saw her wearing it last month on a friend's stream. And I was like, where did you get those things? And mm-hmm. so she told me, she like gave me the, the links and everything. And I was just like, I'm buying this right now. And I have a little bit of a different color scheme. I went with a cream color off over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. and But yeah, it's, she's got darker skin and I don't. And... I feel like as far as style goes, contrasting tones are generally better. So I went with the darker top and that's all aside from the point. I'm sorry. It's um, okay. No, I wanted to describe your outfit for those who can't see you who are listening to the show later. So how my evolving um, relationship with gender over time, my, so it's one of those things that I didn't really have experiences with growing up. There weren't a lot of or any real trans and and gender diverse role models in my life. Yeah. And so I didn't really occur to me first off that, oh yeah, you can just not be a boy, but also like my only experiences with or exposure to trans people were in media, which Mm. if you're familiar with turn of the century trans media or trans representation in media, not great. It's not good. Yeah. It's very bad. It's usually like, one-off gags or the idea of a cross-dresser or imposter played up for disgust or laughs. It's not great. And so I just didn't, I didn't really see myself in a lot of that. And so didn't really come up. Ironically, it's uh, Twitch that sort of made me start to question things as well as my, my spouse, my ex-spouse, their evolving understanding of their gender. But I was exposed to a lot of trans and and non-binary streaming on Twitch in like rhythm game communities and things like that that I was a part of. And they would share their experiences with gender dysphoria and gender euphoria and the coming out and understanding what is going on in their lives. And it was especially post, may I name names? Uh, as far as like the streamers I'm talking about. Oh, sure. Yeah. There was uh, a thread that one of my good friends, Aaron, who goes by Aaron Eternal on Twitch, shared on Twitter that was like, people experience gender dysphoria like 
water, like fish breathe water. It's all around them and they don't really have a, a reference for how their lives exist outside of that. And then it was just a long list of symptoms of gender dysphoria or the ways that people experience gender dysphoria in everyday life. And I read through the entire thread and there were two of them that didn't relate to me. And that's when I was like, I had that, that dawning realization that, oh, all of this, like I'm the fish in water at this point. And it was one of those things that I was able to conceptualize a lot more easily because of my experiences with neurodivergence mm -hmm. and the coming realizations for all of those, like neurodivergent issues because, and with depression, honestly, like just straight up mental illness. I was depressed my entire life, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 22. I was diagnosed the same time I was diagnosed with autism. And it was a moment of, a moment of realization that somebody actually had to just tell me. They had to straight up tell me, you are depressed. This is a problem that you need to address. Because I was like, of course I'm depressed. Life sucks. I hate everything. Um, it's a miserable experience. I'm just trying to get through day to day without, you know, without just suffering indescribable agony. I'm going to introduce a new content warning I didn't think we would need. I'm sorry. That's okay. So this is going to be discussion of suicide. Okay. I am a suicide survivor. I made an attempt on my life when I'm 15. When I was 15, sorry. I won't go into specifics, but I was going through a very dark time in my life. I had a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of frustrations that I didn't think I'd really had. I didn't wasn't really aware of what was going on. I just hated everything. Mm -hmm. And I hated myself most of all. And I ended up making an attempt on my life and then I hit it. I wasn't discovered and I hit it for seven more years. And I didn't really it didn't really come out until after I was diagnosed with depression. And so this is the level of self-awareness that I was operating under is I just, I was fish in water. I had an understanding of life from my own internal experiences that it was just this way. And I had, this is an autism thing, theory of mind issues that made it difficult for me to conceptualize it not being this way for other people. I'm depressed, life sucks. It just sucks for everyone. That's just is, right? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't think about it. I didn't reflect on that. Like maybe I have a chemical imbalance in my brain that makes life suck worse for me than for other people. And it wasn't until I received a 13 page, I, would, I'd be, I was some doctorate student's case study basically in oh, university. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I'd received a 13 page like diagnostic review after doing an entire semester of tests wow. where someone said like, you're only indicator that you aren't severely depressed is that you aren't suicidal and don't have a history of past suicides and i had to like fess up and be like actually so yeah. Yeah, they were yeah, like yeah. you hit every mark and i was like oh i guess i'm i guess i'm depressed then and yeah. then i had to have that same discovery for autism and later for adhd the adhd was significantly delayed because i wasn't diagnosed with adhd they told me because this is another issue with the way that diagnostic criteria happen. Because I'm autistic, I can't be ADHD. We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm very but, interested to hear more about that. 
I, yeah. I just made the most confused face. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So this what was decade this was, was the, this? <laughs> 2013. Okay. This was right. DSM four levels of understanding, but it's still an issue today. Yeah. Um, it's still that. an issue in the DSM five. I don't think they have a DSM six coming out that's going to fix this. But I had this emerging understanding of, of course, my life is this was just the way that I've always thought of it. But that's an issue of my exceptional life experiences. It isn't like this for other people, and I need to start looking at the differences and why. And because I had this emerging understanding multiple times with neurodivergence and with mental illness, it was very easy to reflect back mm -hmm. on gender and sexuality and be like, okay, maybe, in fact, it isn't like this for everyone, and I'm becoming aware of the water I'm swimming in. And so ironically, and I think that a lot of people, there's a higher than average rate of gender diversity in neurodiverse people. And I think that this is why. Yeah, because there is. once you become aware of your neurodivergences and all of that self, you know, introspection and self-reflection that needs to happen in order to reconcile mm -hmm. your neurodivergences with your lived experiences, it becomes easy to take those skills that you learn through self-reflection and through introspection and apply them to other aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely something that happened with me as far as my understanding of my own gender and of my own queer sexuality as it emerged. The queer sexuality, I'm demisexual. Yeah, I think that's the whole of it basically is I had an easier time reconciling my not being cisgender because I had hard time reconciling my not being neurotypical yeah it's hot i am different in all of the ways <laughs> yeah, i think no matter what it is <laughs> if it's disability if it's chronic illness neurodivergence sexuality gender basically anything except for skin color because skin color is visually apparent acceptance of one is uh, once you learn the skills to accept one it becomes easier to accept others especially because you have this you get this idea of how society looks at you differently because of the way that you act and the way that you you think and things like that. With mm -hmm. skin color, it just happens out the gate. I think that because it's visually apparent to everyone, it's one of those things. And this is true with visible disability and visible neurodivergence as well. You are forced to, from a very young age, and basically from the from birth, to interact with society differently. Mm -hmm. And you're not the center. You're not the norm. And once you accept that you're not the norm on one level, as people on the issue of race have to do basically from birth, in America at least, it becomes a lot easier to look at others. And so this is a hard process for white people because it's not something that happens from birth unless you are visibly disabled in some way. I feel like it's generally probably an easier process for people of color, but after the first one, it's easier all the way through. It's like languages. Mm -hmm. Once you learn your first language, every language is easier after that. So your second language makes every language after that super easy. I'm doing a smile over here. <laughs> My goodness, there's so many threads that we could pick up here. So 
I guess that we just talked about gender experience interacting with neurodiverse experience. Is there anything else you want to say on that topic or do you want to move to the next question? I think we move to the next question. I might cycle back to it because I don't think linearly what... It's, you know what, that's totally what this show can be about. We have two neurodivergent people doing a talk show. We're not going to do a linear talk show. True. We should just drop any expectations that this is going to be linear right now. (laughs) So good. Okay. Can you talk a little more about how your ADHD and autism intersect and maybe how you can tell elements of each apart? Because you had mentioned sometimes you can get diagnosed with one, but then you're not supposed to get diagnosed with the other. But in my experience, it seems like there's a ton of crossover between the two, or they may even be aspects of the same situation. Uh, yeah, I would love to talk about the the diagnostic and the, the academic background of that right now, because sure. that's the huge one honestly, is when I was diagnosed, I received a 13-page, like I like I said, I wasn't someone's dissertation, but I was someone's case study in the doctorate psychology program. And it was, I, I tested basically as probable or like severe for every ADHD marker, but I also tested as having autism, basically. Like, a lot of the social difficulties, eye contact, things like that, which I didn't even talk about all the ways that I had to learn to mask over the years that led up to this point. So that just having to learn all of these things myself the hard way. It's one of the things that that is part of the ADHD diagnostic criteria. And it was true in the DSM-4 when I was diagnosed, and it's true in the DSM-5 today when I also had to fight for a, hard for a diagnosis eight years later. If you meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD, which is usually they look at the ways that you behave in certain aspects of your life and they they have a list for like professional and academic life and a list for like personal life. Like how do you have, how do you do with routines in your daily life? Are you good with keeping up with your like homework and your expected tasks? How do you do in meetings at work? And they go, they go down the checklist and they say, okay, how do you relate? How does your experience relate with these difficulties listed here? or these different behaviors listed here. And then after they do all that, you have to hit a certain threshold that's I think eight for your personal life and six for your professional life or something like that. And then they have two disqualifiers. One, the disqualif- the first disqualifier is your life has to be significantly impacted in some way by these different behaviors, like this lack of adherence to or difficulty adhering to routines or process steps and tasks or sustained attention or things like that. You have to have difficulty in your life in order to be diagnosed with ADHD. And the second, and this is where the autism diagnosis becomes super relevant for a lot of people. If you, if your difficulties in this way, after meeting this criteria and after, um, deciding that you are experiencing difficulties in your life, if these difficulties could be explained by another diagnosis, you are not diagnosed with ADHD. And so when I received my diagnosis in January of 2013 of autism spectrum disorder, my papers had a section that, because I was originally submitted for testing for ADHD and learning disabilities. That was the initial focus of my case study. My papers had an entire section that basically said this person 
has probable or severe markers for basically every element of ADHD except for one or two, I think they called out. Mm-hmm. But we are withholding an ADHD diagnosis because we believe that these markers are explained by by aut- by the autism and depression, basically. And, and they did the five? same thing. Hmm? DS- this was DSM-5 or DSM-4? But it's still true in the DSM-5 era because I've read the, I had read the, had read the diagnostic criteria when I was going through it again eight years later mm-hmm. when I did get an affirmative diagnosis. And the same is true for me with anxiety. I was told, oh, you probably have a lot of anxiety or you have a lot of um, anxiety indicators, but we think that autism and depression combined explain a lot of your social difficulties. So we're not diagnosing you with anxiety or social anxiety or whatever it was. I haven't gone over the papers recently, but because of that, I went, and this is actually very significant. I went eight years, additional years after going through this entire process that lasted for months and involved more time than I spent on my actual schoolwork, which is probably why I failed that semester to not get an ADHD diagnosis. And the significant differences between ADHD and autism, as far as they relate to your daily life or how you deal with them, is ADHD is treatable. It's basically your brain isn't producing enough dopamine, have some amphetamines, Mm -hmm. have like, here's some Ritalin. And I, did not get that experience until I was 31. And then it was a night and day experience of daily function. I was struggling to do anything on a timetable and on many days to do anything because of my depression and my lack of medication for ADHD. And then I started taking Ritalin and I was just like, yeah, okay, good for four hours. Let's go. And I went and an additional- You can only take that once a day. I can take it twice a day, but if I take it twice a day, it increases my migraine okay. issues. So I avoid it if I don't have to be on the ball for more than four hours. But I went an additional eight years without even touching these types of medications because I was told, and it was in an official like report and everything, oh, you can't be ADHD, you're autistic. And... It wasn't until eh, six six or so years later that I started doing a lot more reading and a lot more people were coming out about their experiences when I was more involved in social media via Twitch, basically, and, and Twitter because of my being on Twitch that started talking about like other people's experiences with neurodivergence outside of my immediate sphere because I'm in a very rural place and not a lot of these things are discussed openly. And it was then that I realized that actually the opposite is true. There is an unusually high concordance rate between ADHD and autism. Statistically speaking, if you're autistic, you're more likely to be ADHD and vice versa than if you're not. Exactly. And yeah. So where I was originally denied an ADHD diagnosis because I'm autistic and that was used to explain the difficulties that I was having, it was actually probably true that they should have gone, you're autistic. We should be looking, we should be scrutinizing more like how this affects an ADHD diagnosis that you probably should get. 
and which I did get eight years later. And it's, excuse me, a little bit of a tickle in my throat. It's just, it's really, I understand how this happens on some level because you're talking about, oh yeah, what's the difference between like your ADHD and autistic behaviors? I, I can't tell half the time. Mm-hmm. Am I doing this because I'm ADHD? Am I doing it because of autism? Am I doing it for neither of those reasons? And yeah. it's something else entirely. Like one of those things where I think of my, I think of my, my mental health issues because there's five things that I have either diagnostic or diagnostic peripheral issues with, not even thinking about things that I've not been looked at for diagnosis. Just there's five of them that were like officially looked at. And for all of them, I, I, I normally think of it as like a soup and you throw a bunch of things in the pot, like everything might have its, its own, you know, distinct element. It is its, its own ingredient in the soup. But if the soup is mixed thoroughly, what you end up with is soup taste. You don't taste the carrot as much or the, the, the tomato as much or the noodle as much. You taste like the soup and it's all of its contributions to the broth. Uh, a better, like more visual analogy for people that might um, think better that way is to think of all of the, the intersecting or you know overlapping you know, neurodivergence and mental health issues that I have as pigments of paint. Yeah. And when you mix together a green with a pink and an orange with a blue and a red, and you mix all of them together, like when you mix two together, right? You mix red and blue, you get purple. And it's pretty obvious that it's purple and you can see the two components together. When you mix so many of them together, it's brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a brown is a mixture of all of the major pigments, the primary and secondaries and everything. And it's really hard to separate them and to understand them in isolation. I couldn't deconstruct a brown paint and tell you what it's made of if you were to make a composite of pigments. I could probably do that for an orange. And so the mixture and the ratio and the unique components are really not not as important to me in my daily life as they were when I thought I just had one or two because I it's really hard to separate them. And as far as my daily life goes, it's except when I'm like reflecting on it, it's easier to just think of it as part of the composite and address the composite to the best, my best ability and separate them out only when it's obvious which one is affecting my life in some way. And the depression is pretty pronounced. That one's pretty obvious where they're medically treatable, try and treat them all in a way that helps me best live my life. But don't really lean on any one of them as being the the cause and solution to my problems. Yeah. So Juliet and Maddie in the chat are saying, helps to remember that the DSM books make rules for insurance companies more than people. So they don't want to necessarily yes. pay for all the support of someone with both X and Y might want or need. Oh, yeah. So we have to remember that capitalism, especially late stage capitalism, is a big part of why getting these diagnoses is so hard. Yes. Absolutely. And there's a lot of talk in in neurodivergent and disabled communities about the value of self-diagnosis. And when I say neurodivergent and disabled communities, I am, of course, including neurotypical people who interject because you can never have a conversation about these issues that doesn't have outside interference. They just 
Nobody lets you have them. Self-diagnosis is valid if for no better reason, and there are a lot of better reasons, but it is valid for no better reason, if for no better reason, then nobody has your interests in mind more than you. Mm -hmm. Always going to be true throughout your life. Maybe your parents, maybe your parents might have your interests in mind more than you at some point in your life, but only you knows you as good as, and I'm living proof that somebody can study your life and everyone else's like interviews about my life just read me from front to back and still get it wrong. And that was a best case scenario. And that isn't even talking about all of the medical discrimination and ableism that happened outside of the best case scenario and even contained within it. Nobody knows you better than you. And nobody has your interests at heart more than you. And that means that you have to be your advocate because nobody is going to be, nobody's going to have the finger on your pulse or on your needs as much as you. And for me, I tend not to think too far outside my diagnoses, mostly because as we have demonstrated through the last hour of this conversation, I'm not very good at figuring these things out. I am very slow on the uptake when it comes to picking up these signals. So it really helps to have an external signifier. But most people aren't going to get looked at because they're not problems. Or most people aren't going to get looked at because they're problems, but they think the problems are related to their race or gender. Uh, Or other people do. Some people are going to get looked at wrong or by people who are looking to check boxes. And none of them are giving you the attention that you need and deserve because some of them don't know how and some of them don't care. Yeah. But it has to be you. And so self-diagnosis is always going to be valid for that reason. It's source primacy. And the primary source is always the most accurate source for reflecting one's own lived experiences. So... I'm going to pivot now and ask you about theater because theater is fun. And I'm curious how your work in musical theater relates to your gender experience. Do you make use of the creative outlet to explore or express your gender? Can I talk about this from ADHD or neurodivergent lens as well? I'll do both. Yeah, that's fine. So great. So from a neurodivergence perspective, theater was huge in helping me develop a social rule set and build the, the, the skill of interacting with people on a social level. Like I said, I, I homeschooled all the way up to college. When I got to college, I was exceptional as a student, but I was really terrible socially. And I did a lot of reading body psychology books and body language books and things like that and being like, this is how people interact. And I developed rules for social interaction, like the two-thirds rule for eye contact, if which is... People, if you make eye contact too much, people think of you as abrasive or overbearing. Mm -hmm. If you make eye contact too little, people think of you as shifty or untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. And I portion that out to about two thirds of the time is the sweet spot. So if you're making eye contact about two thirds of the time, people will see you as being engaged without being too overbearing on them. And so I run two internal timers in my head. One of them is the total length of a conversation and the other is the length of time that I'm speaking with somebody. And this is mentally taxing. All of my rules are mentally taxing. And it's why interaction, it's why masking is exhausting for people with autism. Yes. Um, And I run these two internal timers in my head and I sort of portion it out. I do five on, two off, two on, one off, that sort of a thing. 
And theater helped me practice those skills. And it also helped me do so from a structured play setting, basically. Theater is structured social play and recommended for everyone who has autism. Just every autistic person should do theater because it just helps you build those skills in a way that like, you don't have to think about what you're saying, just read from the script, but read from it with intention. Read from yeah. the script while practicing all of your nonverbal cues. And you're gonna get direction. The director will tell you what to do. They'll tell you, this is how you express shock. And you express shock what the director tells you to. And then obviously it's gonna be exaggerated because you're playing it up for theater, but do half of what the director tells you in real life or do everything the director tells you in real life half as intensely and you're gonna get social interaction down, congratulations. Or you're gonna get social interaction that neurotypicals want out of you. As far as it relates to my gender experience, I wish I could tell you that I got to experiment more. Unfortunately, I usually didn't get a lot of those roles. There is a, there's the the wolf in Shrek who is a cross-dresser who basically comes out in the, during the show. And I played the Mad Hatter instead. We did Rocky Horror and I was super invested in trying to get the role of Dr. Frankenberger and I didn't. I did not get cast for that show. I was the only person that didn't get a call back. And I was also the only non-cis person who auditioned, oh which was goodness. a bit of an oof. That's but, underwhelming. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was unfortunate, but it happens. I did learn a lot about my sexuality through theater as I was cast as... I've only been cast as a romantic lead twice, and both times it was as a gay romantic lead. And one of them I had to back out of, and the second one, which was Hanshin in Spring Awakening, made me realize that I'm really not gay. Just I had to kiss the same guy over and over again <laughs> on stage, and he's a he's a charming dude. We got had some pretty involved kisses. Did nothing for me, nothing whatsoever. Someone on the chat said to... you had your own Spring Awakening. In a way, I suppose. Oh. God, it didn't it didn't happen that way? Uh, it was. <laughs> it, it's more like a spring snooze. The the alarm bells went off for that Spring Awakening, and I snoozed through it because it just wasn't for me. I'm laughing so hard, my but cheeks hurt. <laughs> one thing that theater did help me out with, even though I didn't do a lot of non-conforming roles was the idea of putting on a mask, so to speak, putting on faces, experimenting with style and with putting on a front. Like I've basically, this is an, an autism thing, putting on masks to be neurodivergent. It's an extension of that process that theater opened my eyes to of I can put on any mask I want. I don't have to put on the neurodivergent version of me mask. I can put on the girl version of me mask. I can be someone completely different and and it's it works just as well. I can be somebody else as a performance. And if I gel with that performance, I should probably start thinking about what that means for myself. And mm -hmm. so the musical theater sort of opened me up to the possibility of exploration in the generic sense of being a different person, putting on a mask that isn't just the socially acceptable version of me and seeing where those masks lead for me. Mm -hmm. And so while I don't get to explore my gender a lot in on stage, I do get to use that, the skills that I built from there as a, an avenue to explore myself off stage. If you could play any role in any theater production, what would you choose and why? Ooh, good question. Frankenfurter uh -huh. is one of them. 
I'm spacing on the name. Hold on one second. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm spacing on the name. Leo Bloom from The Producers. That's another bucket list role for me. Okay. Dr. Frankenfurter, definitely for the expression of gender and sexuality, like just being able to just be unapologetically, bombastically queer and just play it up. And Frank, it's not played up for laughs. Dr. Frankenfurter is a character that has a force of personality and is just confidently, aggressively queer in so many different ways. And I would just, I would love to be that person who just goes out in, in, in fishnet stockings and a corset and just dominates the stage for two hours. I love that. And the confidence is a big part of it for me too. Like this is Rocky horror spoilers, but who hasn't seen it in the last 50 years that isn't going to see it or that is going to see it. Dr. Frankenfurter is an archetype for a lot of people. Definitely. It's a template for a lot of subsequent queer roles. It's outdated in some ways, but it's breaking in others. And I think that the way that it's outdated are ways that it was groundbreaking in the past. This suffers from the Seinfeld effect in a way for queer representation, where it is seen from a lens as inferior in by media that used it to get to where they got. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and but the queerness of Dr. Frankenfurter, while it's front and center, it isn't front and center in a way that you're not playing a kill your gaze character, you're not doing queer tragedy, you're not doing the excruciating, like the traumatic elements of self exploration. You're doing a character who has their hands on their hips and both legs out, hip thrusting, and is just unabashedly confident in their queerness. Mm-hmm. Like all of the, you're seeing like confident queer expression. Yeah, And that's a really inspiring thing to just be able to play is someone who takes charge and takes the lead in their sexuality, who isn't shied away or cowed by societal expectations on their gender or sexuality, who is just queer and proud and flaunts it magnificently. And that's just like such a cool role to play. And of course you get to be a villain too. Oh God. I still haven't played a villain and I'd love to. I played like characters that were bad, but I've never played the bad guy, you know? What villain like, would you to love to play? Frankenfurter. But yes, of course. I wanted to be Monsieur Thenardier in Les Miserables. Ooh. I didn't like the role at first because I only read the book before I actually was part of that play. And I auditioned for Marius instead and I didn't get Marius. And I'm glad I didn't because Marius sucks in Les Miserables. Marius is so one-dimensional compared to the book. If you ever have the opportunity to read Les Miserables, you'll see how much they stripped away from that character in order to make him a generic male love interest. They did a lot with Monsieur Thenardier, though they took away a lot of the backstory of Mr. They made the character like the Harlequin, like devil archetype, and they played it up so well. And it was so, it's so fun. And I wish I'd gotten the opportunity to play that role when we did it in 2013, but I'd probably roll back on that one from the fan of the opera. It's like a combination of romantic lead and villain. And uh, that checks off a lot of boxes for me as well. Pretty basic with my musical. So like I do musical theater, but I'm the least musical theater person you'll ever know. I Almost none of the shows that I've ever done are things that I've actually experienced before I did them. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times I 
roll up to a show and I've listened to its music for the first time 15 minutes before walking in the door and I just mm-hmm. throw down my audition piece and I usually get cast as something, but I don't have a lot of, I'm not a theater geek, as they would say. I don't have a lot of knowledge that extends to, yeah, I love this show because it had so much meaning for me growing up and all this years of theater and everything. I was like, no, I like the show because it's a movie tie-in or I like the show because my favorite musical comedian did the the scoring for it. That one would be uh, Matilda and Groundhog Day, which Tim mentioned is one of my favorite um, musical comedians. Or just, yeah, I, I like this thing from other unrelated media. Like, I liked the music because I read the book. Like, nobody reads the book these days, but that's why I liked it. And a lot of other people were like, hey, the movie was groundbreaking. It's like, I didn't watch the movie. I didn't listen <laughs> to the show. Um, I'm auditioning because I like the character in the book and turns out the character in the book is nothing like it. Yeah, I have a very different approach to musical theater from that perspective. As for Leo Bloom, definitely Gene Wilder's performance, which was absolutely iconic in the original producer's movie, is 90% of the reason why I would want to do that role because I would wish to one day do Gene Wilder justice. Another would be... I just, I love the character of Leo. He's, he's, he's nevish and, and skittish and just like totally like a nervous wreck. And I would love to just be able to, this is sort of a, a neurodivergence thing, actually. I'd love to play the character that just has meltdowns and is just completely like falling apart on stage in a way that I can relate to, mm-hmm. like with a blanket. So spoilers for the intro of the producers. Again, this is one of those, if you haven't seen it in the last 50 years, are you going to see it? But Leo has this blanket that he pulls out when his anxiety gets too much and he just rubs it against his face and it's his baby blanket, it's baby blue blanket. And he rubs it against his face and it's this sort of this, this calming thing. And there's so many parallels to autistic stimming there. Yeah, it's like, a calming stim. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a fix, fixation on a specific item. It's a textural thing, the texture of the blanket on the face. It's emotional in a way that like evokes memory of a specific thing. Mm-hmm. And when the blanket gets taken away, he flies into an absolute rage, mm-hmm. just becomes inconsolable, screaming, shouting, babbling. Like it's such a, it's something that only receiving the fix it, the fix it of item again helps to calm down and I don't think I don't think the character was written by Mel Brooks with like autism specifically in mind but there's so much relatable stuff for autistic people just in that like minute of expression Mm -hmm. it's definitely played up for this is me at my absolute worst but it's cool to just be able to express that just be able to just go all the way out there on that and the character is nevertheless a capable lead right he's not just this nervous wreck and he grows through the anxiety over the course of the show and becomes a, a person that takes charge in a lot of ways. And of course, the show is just so ridiculous in so many ways. And it's timeless in still relevant today for a lot of reasons that it shouldn't be relevant. And I just, I would love to be a part of it. Awesome. We have two more things that are not necessarily related to each other, but are topics of interest that I want to make sure we have time for today. So the next question I have for you is, can you tell us about your charity and fundraising activities? Where do you set your goals and how do you achieve them? How do you decide which cause to fundraise for? So it's a threefer. Okay. So tell me about charity and fundraising activities. I Volunteerism has been a lifelong thing that my mother actually helped instill in me from a very young age. 
I did a lot of work growing up with the Sierra Club and with the children's museums and volunteering at schools, which my mother also did. I wasn't good at some of these things, but I still did them. I was a uh, chapter president for Phi Theta Kappa, which is a two-year honor society where we did a lot of like food drives and, and like street cleanups and beach cleanups and everything like that. Basically just trying to do charity and good works wherever I could. And when extrapolating forward, so I've also done a lot of like policy advocacy. Extrapolating forward to my streaming, I decided that I wanted my stream to be a platform for charity and good works. So I did a little of this, much less of this in the last year, mostly because I didn't do much streaming at all in the last year, but I use my platform whenever possible to amplify causes that I think are important as well as to raise awareness for things that maybe people aren't super aware of and also to raise funds. As far as what charities I choose, causes I fundraise for, most of them are interests that are specific to me. Some of them are interests that I think are important in the moment. And that means a lot of different things. And I'd like to elaborate. When we, when I look at charities and some of them are just, I just have a vibe and I just want to roll with it. Like things that I think are like perpetually important. For example, I did a fundraiser for the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network as my first year stream anniversary. And I transitioned from that into becoming a regular member of the Autistic Gaming Initiative, which is a collective of autistic people, a lot of whom we use Twitch as a monthly charity marathon, basically. We do a relay, two 12-hour days when we can get the people for it on the last weekend of every month. And it's basically, we just raise money for the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. And through AWN, the Autistic People of Color Collective, or the Autistic People of Color Fund, I believe it's called. And things like the Alzheimer's Association, I'm also very involved with. I've been a policy advocate for them for three years as a volunteer for Hawaii District 2, which is where I am. My mother was diagnosed in her 50s with early onset Alzheimer's, mm. and I'm currently one of her main caretakers. And... I advocate for her, mostly. It's something that's personally important to me, and it's going to be important to me for probably the rest of my life. And so that's pretty obvious a cause that I'm going to raise money for. Yeah. Some Sometimes it's things that are important to me in the moment, and it's not that they're not always important, but it's that they're the most important thing to me at the time. One example of that would be I recently did a fundraiser for Rise Above the Disorder, titled Rad for Rad. And the Tilt of Fire for that is still active if you want to donate to it. For that, I mental health is something that's like preeminently at the forefront of my mind for a lot of reasons. Because I'm someone, I have depression, I have anxiety. I have been dealing with like panic attacks that I have been told are indicative of CPTSD mm -hmm. or PTSD, either or. Everything got, my life has been pretty awful in a lot of ways from late December or from late 2020 onward. And everything's hit a critical threshold in the summer 2021 and early, like into fall. And I just was completely like non-functioning as a person for months at a time. Nothing was... I wasn't doing anything. I was at my lowest in, for several years. And so the only thing I really did was I was I did a speed run for Space for Headspace, which is also for a mental health charity. And 
when I started to feel better, there's degrees of struggling with mental illness. There's drowning, there's drowned, there's you're treading water, there's you're up to your neck and eight, you're up to your waist, that sort of thing. There's different levels. Yeah. When I started to tread water again in December, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do something for mental health because I'm finally breathing. And God, I love the breath, the, the, fre- the breath of fresh air that I'm getting, but yeah. I need other people to, to get that breath of fresh air. So while it was preeminently important to me, it became especially important right then mm-hmm. that I do something for mental health. And so I reached out to Rise Above the Disorder to do that. And other times it's important because it's because the need arises. I did two fundraisers in June of 2020, mm-hmm. um, one for the Minnesota Bail Fund and the other for the Bail Project. And those were responses to the Black Lives Matter protests yeah. um, following the death of George Floyd. And while Black Lives Matter every month of the year, it's Black History Month, but your favorite Black creators are Black year-round, and they should be supported all 12 months of the year, including the 11 that the spotlight isn't on them. The There was like a spike in arrests. There was a spike in incarcerations and, and imprisonment that happened as a direct response to police reaction to the George Floyd protests. And... I that resulted in these small bail funds that usually only get like maybe you know tens of thousands of dollars a year suddenly needing like a million dollars to get all the people that were just jailed in their local areas out. Yeah. And so I did a, a fundraiser for the Minnesota Bail Fund as a direct response to that because that's where the local protests were happening and everyone was being thrown in jail. And mm-hmm. so that's they needed the money there right now that they didn't otherwise need. So it was a very localized, it was uh, a need that was very localized in time and space that was significantly higher than otherwise would be. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you just need to react to to need. The Australian wildfires would be another one. I didn't do a fundraiser for that, but you can bet I started throwing money um, my way because I didn't have the, the mental capacity, but I did have the funds at the time to throw money at the Australian wildfires. Australia's not always on fire, but when it's on fire, it needs firefighters. So sometimes the response to need is what makes something locally in higher demand. Yeah. And totally. sometimes I just want to do something. <laughs> like I did uh, Notes for Notes, which isn't on fire. It's a program that helps provide studio quality equipment to children in underserviced communities, like in after school programs and stuff like that. So they have music programs that they can do that have really high quality equipment and, and music production software and things like that. And this is not something that's on fire. Nobody in this program is dying or dead. Right. Um, it is not a response to an urgent need for survival, but sometimes you just want to feel good. And that there's so much compassion fatigue and so much burnout that happens in nonprofit spaces and in fundraising spaces, and especially in volunteer. It happens just as much with people who work in caretaker positions. I've experienced it in all four of those capacities. And I was feeling... I was fighting the burnout that happened in 2020 with doing five charity fundraisers back to back on things that were important and needed attention. And I'm glad that I did them. And I just needed to do something that made me feel good. That was a feel good, donate puppies to children type of thing 
And so I did notes for notes because music is important to me, but I also just wanted to do, I wanted to do something that allows people to celebrate joy rather than alleviate pain just once. Yeah. And so sometimes that's my focus is just what am I doing for my own mental health to, to feel good about? Yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed about that. Sometimes you need to elevate people's joy rather than alleviate their pain. Yeah. I, I love this concept of you have a core value of mutual aid and support. And it's, I'm always going to be doing a charity something. It's just yeah. which thing I focus on that month or that season is depending on your current mental state and reacting to current events. It's very dynamic the way that you do your fundraising. Yeah. I love as far that. as how do I achieve my goals, mutual aid definitely comes into play for a lot of that. One of the charity events that I did, and this was the one in which I did my autistic self-advocacy network fundraising. I did something called the Advent Charity Calendar. And for that, I collected 25 different streamers, or 24, I think. We, we did a pass on Christmas Day. And we did a month-long calendar from the 1st to the 24th of the month. And every day had a different streamer streaming for a cause that they wanted to stream for mm -hmm. and raise money for. And I organized the entire thing where I had gifts that I had giveaways that two giveaways that every streamer could do. And so I got like hundreds of dollars of gifts that they could give away and I portioned them out. So everyone got two giveaways and I had the system where like people who donate to multiple days on the calendar had like greater chances of getting gifts. So like it supported the idea of going to drop money for multiple causes. And everyone in that in that charity collective was intended to support everyone. The idea behind it was that 25 people raising money individually without some sort of collective support, they get whatever their individual status or clout or whatever would get them. And smaller streamers might raise 20 bucks and they might raise nothing because nobody's got eyes on them. But if you take 25 people and you put them together and you have 25 people's worth of effort spirit bombing every day, on mm -hmm. one person, then that person, each person will raise more than they would have just individually. Right. So the idea behind it and the execution happened about a third of the way towards this. And um, we had some people that regularly supported and some people that didn't support anyone but themselves and that was a mess. But the idea was that if you're dropping a go live tweet for this charity on your day, 24 other people retweet it or 23 other people retweet it, then the it reaches the follower base of all 24 of those people. And you do that every day with a different spotlight. And I mutual aid is a big focus for me on that. It's also this concept of like mutualism of everyone lifting everyone up based on, based on need and ability, each to their own ability and need, but also each to everyone else. And then also my one of my biggest guiding principles for this is self-advocacy. Again, like I said, back in the diet, you know, the reason why self-diagnosis is valid is the same reason why you should fight for your causes and not for others, but up, you should elevate others is you are your best advocate. You better than anyone else knows you and you have your own interests in heart better than anyone else. And what this means is, and this means that I don't want neurotypical people fighting for my autistic advocacy so much as I want them to elevate my fight. And I don't want to be the person who is at the forefront of stop Asian hate, for example, when that was a big thing, but it was recent. I don't want to be the person who's talking. If I'm the person who's talking, 
about stop Asian hate and I'm the person sucking up the oxygen in the room, something bad has happened. Something has gone right. wrong with this process. I should instead be elevating Asian folks who are talking about this because they're the ones who should be advocating for themselves and they should be the leaders of that cause. And my job is not to try and become a leader of someone else's cause. It's to be a supporter of that cause. It's to be, it's to make their advocacy count as much as possible. And for them to make my advocacy for my causes count as much as possible. So I also choose my charities that way, but I also, when it comes to other people's charity efforts, support them where it means the most to them, basically. Yeah. So the, you have so much passion for this. I want to take a minute to talk about something. One, to give you a break from talking because you have been giving us so many wonderful things to think about and chew on, but also it's totally relevant to what you've just been speaking about. There is a new stream team that's forming called Gender Federation. And it's similar to what you've been talking about where you have your 25 people and you do your little advent thing and you take turns mm -hmm. focusing on each other. And through the power of teamwork, you're lifting up this, this activity and this message and your streams are getting out to 25 people's spaces instead of just one or right. a smaller number. And so Gender Federation is a new multi-platform stream team that I am founding that features a gender diverse content creators whose aim is to fundraise direct mutual aid for gender confirmation surgeries. Because personally, I have a belief or even lived experience, I'll say, that these, for me at least, for those who have gender dysphoria that's based in the body, the single most impactful thing that can happen is getting that gender confirmation surgery. And there's so many collateral expenses that go with surgery that's not just paying the surgeon, right? There's your co-pays, there's your hotel, there's your travel, there's having someone take care of you and maybe they take off work, you have to take off work, you have to eat food while you're there, all of it. And we decided that the least red tape version of doing something to help with this cause would be to just put money directly in the hands of trans people. And so not doing a bunch of gatekeeping and all of that, because all of that activity takes time and energy. Yeah. I think a basic, do you have a surgery that's scheduled? When is that? Is your insurance covering a thing? Do you have a copay? What is that? Yeah. The application can ask some of those questions, but anyway, so it's, yeah, it's very exciting. It's a very, it's a new, it's a new team. I just dropped the link tree in the chat for folks who are interested. We just got our Twitter account back yesterday. We've had a whole time with that, but we don't even currently have a Twitch partner. So it's going to be more like what you were talking about. It's just a bunch of meeting people yeah. doing their best with what they have. And we were hoping that it will be multi-platform, not only on Twitch, but once Altair launches later this quarter, it will be over there too making a splash because that platform is being developed with a lot of the mental health struggles that you and I have been talking about, a lot of the, the diverse identities in mind, like the user interface has been developed from a place that's considering that at the start. And so I think yeah. that's going to be a really powerful platform to do this type of coordinated effort. And so I love that you just spent some time talking about that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So anyways, the, the founders have been selected and the team applications will be later. <laughs> We haven't even picked when that's going to be because we want to make sure it's really solid with the like 10 people we picked for now before we open it up to everyone. Right. But it's very, it's a very exciting endeavor and I can't wait to see what we do collectively as a team. Yeah. Anyways, hopefully you caught your breath a little. 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so the last sort of topical question I have before we ask my two little wrap-up questions is, can you tell us a little more about your RPG projects? How is world building and design work going? How, if any, do the games that you design or run or work on pick up topics like LGBTQ and neurodiversity? So as far as my, as far as my, RG, my RPG projects go, I my, my stream actually started as an actual play. I did a season of Rogues Gallery, which was an aquatic pirate themed campaign. We didn't really touch on a lot of those things. It was just your generic campaign. I was also, at the time, considered cisgendered. There's, you know, it wasn't really doing a lot of gender exploration when I first started. It started emerging as Rogue's Gallery was falling off. I haven't done a lot in the TTRPG space on Twitch since then because it's hard. It turns out I've applied to a lot of shows and have been accepted to none of them. And I've seen some of them, like a lot of the same people get all of the roles. And I feel like that's just, just generally the case. with. A lot of these sort of collaborative efforts, it's social and people with a lot of social energy and social capacity and cloud exposure. It's a self-feeding process of the more roles you get, the more roles you get. And so once you, until you get your first role, you're really struggling to get your first role. So I'm not really doing anything on TTRPG like Twitch because I was creating a an actual play called Role for Initiatives. And it was explicitly charity focused. It was all proceeds go to the charity of choice. And the idea behind it was, again, this collectivist mutualist idea in mind of everyone takes turns DMing. They DM when they want to DM. When they DM, the money goes to their chosen charity. Uh And so it's basically like they lead the cause. And there was, I had a team built and I had all the assets built and it was amazing and great and perfect and good. Mm -hmm. And I had an amazing group of of actors who wanted to take part in this. Not all of them wanted to DM, but they were willing to put in energy for other people's causes, nevertheless. And then my mental health went down the hole and the project fell apart and it didn't actually end up happening. So I have a lot of TTRPG assets for an actual play I'm not using. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of applications that are going to shows I'm not a part of. And so on Twitch, I'm not doing all that much. However, I am the community manager for an application called Adventuring Kit. Adventuring Kit is the simplest way for me to put it for people who are familiar with PTRPG is it's Roll20. It's like, it's a virtual tabletop app that does, it serves the same basic function that Roll20 does. So if you are familiar with the purpose of Roll20, you are familiar with the purpose of Adventuring Kit. If you're not, what Adventuring Kit is, and Roll20 and all of these other apps are, is it's a, a tabletop, a virtual tabletop that allows you to use your own maps as well as have its own map maker grids. You can use your own tokens. Everyone can share objects within a sh- the same room and move objects around, share information, roll dice on the same platform. Basically, it's just an all-in-one, everything that you would physical materials for in order to play the RPG that you want to play at a table, you have those all those assets, but virtually, including like a soundboard that you can, you know, play audio files from and everything like that. The program Adventuring Kit is does the design focus is a little bit different from Roll Twenty, and this is what we're trying to promote it for. Is the design focus of Adventuring Kit is you only see what you need. So you don't, one of the problems that I've had with a lot of virtual tabletop apps in the past Mm -hmm. as a neurodivergent person, but 
who knows if it's super related to my neurodivergence is overwhelming options of mm-hmm. there's so much that you have to be mindful of so much that you have to keep track of that you got to use and do and just, you're juggling a lot of things especially as a dm but even as a player and so the idea for this is that it's modular it's simplified but you have all the tools you need but not a lot gets in the way if you're not using it mm-hmm. and it's more of that simple design that focuses on just giving you what you need to make things work and it hasn't happened yet we're still trying to get the basic design features on the ground but looking at the disability consulting in order to make sure that these features are accessible on all levels that they reach all different like learning modalities and everything like that the ways that people interact with these things are intuitive to people who have different have different cognitive experiences as well as different physical experiences on the basis of disability so it's we're trying to be forward with our design philosophy on that and i'm hoping that it becomes a pretty a, a pretty cool app to be used for that purpose because i'd like it to be a good introduction to people who might not be super tech savvy um or who might not be super might not intuit a lot of what happens in a tabletop um to be able to use it virtually in an intuitive sense sorry i was thinking about some things no worries I love all the things you just said about Adventuring Kit. Mage Soul even said in the chat that, oh, it's never good that your stuff that you worked hard on goes to waste, and Mage hopes that those assets can be used soon enough. Maybe I'll, I'll try again in 2022, but it's, I feel like I need to, there's a lot of things I need to do to get back on track mm-hmm. before I really start thinking about programs that ambitious, because from the Twitch end, just from Twitch metrics end, I've come back to streaming regularly for the last two months. It's not all about the numbers, but when you take an extended break, the numbers aren't there. You, I came back to probably a quarter of the regular users that I was coming back to. I have a lot of dead chats in my streams now. It's not great. I used to be like around like the mid to high teens as far as viewer mm-hmm. averages go, like across all my streams. And now I'm averaging like three or four. And yeah. it's really hard to say, I want to create a regular production that has all of these moving parts that it's super important to like, it, it, you, you make a big production of it and you get a bunch of other people's energy on it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because everyone that's, that's promoting it from the back end, doing all the technical elements, all the actors and everything like that. Tell these people, I want to use all your time to do this thing and know that you might, it might be seen by a dozen people is that's like less than the people you have on screen. It's really hard to do that when you know that there are other things that you could do first, as far as just building momentum as a basic content creator, getting a reliable schedule down getting everything that you need, making yourself a reliable place for a reliable and safe and entertaining space for people to spend their time. And then you pivot to scaling up your projects. So mm-hmm. I might do role for initiatives later, but yeah. right now it's not ready. I'm not ready. Yeah, I hear that. I I have been really grateful for all of the mods and people willing to edit content and this the people that have come along and have wanted to get involved with this channel it's been really 
phenomenal and a huge blessing to have helpers come because it's so difficult to do this all by yourself. It feels almost impossible, honestly, to do it by yourself, especially you said you've been doing this for over two years to really hang on and keep doing it for as long as you've been doing it. It takes a lot of spoons. It's a lot. And so juggling mental health and all of those other pieces, especially during pandemic, right? Like it's been a time for a lot of people. There's a lot of content creators that I met when I started out and a lot of them have fallen away and have stopped. They either had to go get day jobs or they just stopped streaming for whatever reason. And so it's interesting to see the people who have stuck with it, even if it hasn't been consistent, but the people who just keep trying and keep coming back and keep working at it. It's cool. It's cool that I see you just continuing to do your thing, Rad. It makes me really happy. Daw feelings. Okay, so I have two more questions for you. And then if anyone in the chat has questions, Mirami says, Rad is Rad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so do you have an experience that you would like to share with gender euphoria? An experience with gender euphoria? Chad, how do I look? Beautiful. There we go. That's my experience <laughs> with gender euphoria right now. I just love the hair off to the one side. It's so nice. Thank you. So lovely. Yeah, I've been I've been playing with style a lot more in the last couple of years. And like the picture that I took for oh, that was used for the promo for this stream is another example of like the outfits that I've been playing around with. Do the crop jacket. Actually it's my mother's jacket. She's a foot shorter than me. So it's a very small jacket on me. But I'm playing around with a different a different clothes and everything. And sometimes it just hit a vibe. And I'm just yeah. like, all right, I mess with this. I enjoy it. And I'm just grooving. So like right now I'm grooving. I like the way I look. I love so, it so much. Yeah. Did you feel like you went through a period of your life where you didn't have a body or like your feelings towards fashion were just a shrug, like, yeah, whatever. And then once you found your gender identity, you started to care for the first time in your life? Because that's what it was like for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. So much of my clothes growing up were actually just hand-me-downs. I didn't have a lot of my own clothes. And they were hand-me-downs from people who were not in the family because I was the oldest kid. So... I got hand-me-downs from other people's families and stuff like that. And I, basically my look was just whatever people didn't want for first couple decades of my life. And then afterwards, like I just, I was always just frumpy and just did not have any sense of style or fashion at all until my twenties. And then I started really caring about my appearance, but it was like suits and rolled up sleeves on plaid shirts and everything like that. And mostly when I started caring about my appearance, it was the clothes that could fit me. Mm -hmm. Finding clothes that fit instead of having to wear belts to get like size 34 hand-me-downs on a 26 inch waist and so clothes that fit and as it turns out the only shirts that fit me on the entire island Macy's was the only place that would sell men's XS mm -hmm. which is the smallest men's size which is my size and the only shirts that they would sell were uh, v-neck t-shirts and uh, plaid button downs. And so that became my style for half a decade <laughs> was crop was like V-necks and V-neck t-shirts and plaid button downs, sometimes worn on top of each other. Those uh, both sound was... very lesbian in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and I just wore jeans every day. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. That's my whole fashion for years. <laughs> and then the odd time, the odd occasion I wear a suit and like now, like, you all can't see, but I've got, like, yoga pants on, and, like, they're a whole vibe. 
loving it. My wife also loves yoga pants. She feels like they're this great awakening for her. They breathe. They breathe. They're form-fitting. I have a butt. Yeah. I have a butt. (laughs) I, I, my trunk is the only place I've got junk. Let me tell you. And (laughs) it's, it's nice to see. I'm loving it. I vibe with it. So. (laughs) That's so fun. I love that so much. Rad, the last question I have for you today is what would you like to make sure folks know about your perspective on gender and uh, non-binary slash trans issues? If you are one, you should be looking a lot at the others, basically. If you're autistic and uh, you don't feel like you fit in your body, use the process that you use to explore your autism and use it to explore your gender and vice versa. You feel like you don't fit in your body and you also don't feel like you fit in. These things might be related. Mm-hmm. And if you've got if you've got the process down, just apply it. Generalize. You might find I, I feel like this is something that happens with queer spaces in general, is someone finds out that, oh, they're gay. No, actually, they're straight and trans. No, actually, they're gay and trans. And it's just it's an ongoing process. And it's a lot of back and forth, but that discovery process applies to neurodivergence as well. Totally. And once you've (laughs) mastered that process or you've gotten a role on a roll with that process with one, it's so easy to transfer those skills to the other. You might find out a lot about yourself Mm -hmm. that you didn't know or that you didn't think really applied to you. When you look at other people who are experiencing all of these things, you explore your neurodivergence through a trans lens. Explore your transness through a neurodivergent lens. There's so much overlap in the way that society treats you for these things mm-hmm. that it you might not realize that you're in different water. Like you, you, the, the whole fish and water thing, right? Like you experience gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. like a fish breathing water. You might not realize that you're in seawater as opposed to salt water. They're very similar, the, the way that you're, you breathe through these, this water, but it's, it tastes different. And you just gotta apply the similar experiences to a slightly different, slightly different experience, that's all. Yeah. Rad, it has been totally a delight and joy to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come be with us. Of course, we're thank gonna, you for having me. We're gonna read your channel in just a minute, but first I wanna make sure we remind everyone of the various cross promo thingies. Cool. In that case, I'm going to dip so I can get my stream set up. Sounds good. Um, Sounds great. Y'all yeah. have a lovely day and stay rad, y'all. Stay rad, y'all. Love it. 